I'm going to start this morning with a phrase I think all of you are familiar with. So as soon as you can, I'll just ask you to start repeating it with me. You can't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a book by its cover. Now, I want to ask you, how true really is that? Of course, when people say you can't judge a book by its cover, they're not actually talking about books, right? They're talking about people, and you can't just look at the outside of a person and judge what is on the inside. And of course, that is true. That is very true. But can you really not judge a book by its cover? I think most of you, when you were in the ninth grade, and you got a book from your teacher that said, math on it. I think you had a pretty good idea about what the book was. Sometimes you can judge a book by its cover. And I start here because we dive in this morning into a study that I think God wants for us as a church. We're going to start in this morning on the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark. Now, Mark gets a little bit of a short shrift among Christians and especially among preachers. Mark is the gospel we kind of forget about a little bit. Mark is the kind of one that maybe we spend a lot of time in the other gospels, but not so much in Mark. In fact, John MacArthur, the noted Bible preacher, spent 40 years preaching through the entire New Testament. And guess what the last New Testament book he got around to preaching on was? Mark, the last one. And think of Matthew. Think of Matthew with the Beatitudes and all the parables of Jesus and this rich Jewish tapestry from which to draw from. And we think, oh, there's Matthew. And then we go to Luke and we think of the historical narrative that Luke provides, all the details about what's going on. A physician speaking in this eloquent language for us to understand. And we say, oh, that's Luke. And then we go to John. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and all this theology that comes out of John and then we say oh yeah there's Mark too Mark is the shortest of all the gospel accounts only 16 chapters Mark has only four of Jesus's parables in it it's not a teaching book it's not filled with all of these doctrinal statements that we can really dig our teeth into not only that Notice where Mark starts. There's no recitation of the birth of Jesus. We don't get the Christmas story in it. We don't get any particular descriptions of who his family or who his mother was in the beginning, the virgin birth. None of that. It just jumps in almost as if it's in the middle. Jumping in with John the Baptist. The other thing to note about Mark is that it's not a book of Jesus' words. It's a book of his actions. Over and over you see words like immediately and straightway or just and he does this next. Not only that, in the, in the way even Mark writes, in 
his Greek that he uses. You'll see in this book, he doesn't say things like Jesus said or Jesus did. He uses it in the present tense. Jesus says or Jesus does or Jesus acts. It's like he wants us to come along for the ride and it's like we are ourselves watching the narrative of everything that Jesus did. Mark is a book of action. It is a book about what Jesus did and not only that, a book about who Jesus was. In this book, he is presented as the servant of God who suffers for man. The suffering servant, it has been called. So why this book? Well, you recall when we finished up the book, uh, the chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, that great view of faith, we said that we needed to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And as we go through this book of the gospel of Mark together, I want us to be looking to Jesus. I want us to try to be understanding in a fresh way who he was and how he acted and what he did. In fact, this book, because it is so simple and so straightforward and so clear, Bible translators that say Wycliffe Bible translators, they would tell you that this book is probably the most translated book in all of the Bible in a new language. If people come to a new part of, of the globe where they don't have the written word of God, most likely the Bible translators are going to start with Mark. And in fact, if you wanted to introduce someone to who Jesus was as just a historical matter, maybe in your neighborhood, maybe at your workplace, and maybe you suggested him, would you like to get together and study the Bible with me? The book of Mark would be a really good place to start. Because again, it is so clear, it is so simple, it is so straightforward on who Jesus Christ is. So now let me stop there. As we start on this journey together, going through an entire book of the Bible, the Gospel of Mark, I want to start with the cover. You say, what do you mean? Look at that first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. One way you could understand that verse is simply to say this. Here begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I read that in the old days, in the old times around this was written, books wouldn't necessarily have covers or titles. They would just launch right in. If you wanted to catch people's attention, you better have something to grab their view, grab their focus right away. And it's as if here, this is Mark's title. It's his introduction. It's his cover to the entire book. Here begins the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You say, are you going to preach a whole sermon on that? I am. I am. And I want to suggest to you this morning, you're going to be blown away when you realize how much is covered in that one verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Can you judge this book by its cover? You can. And it's going to tell us everything that Mark wants us to learn. The, the title of the message this morning is simply Mark's cover page. Mark's cover page. And I'm going to look at three things today as a way of introduction into this book that I hope will be helpful. The first is the author of this book. 
the author of this gospel. The second is the purpose of this gospel. And the third is the subject of this gospel. The author of the gospel, the, the purpose of the gospel, and then the subject of it. Now, who is the author? Well, it's, it says here in our Bibles, it's the gospel according to Mark. Now, do you know who Mark is? No, I'm not talking about that guy right there. We all know who that guy is. We know, we know that Mark. Do you know this Mark? Now, you say, how do I know that Mark wrote it? Do you know there's not one thing in this entire book that identifies Mark as the author? Mark's name does not occur in this book. So you say, how do you know that it's Mark? Well, we know this. From the early days of the church, the absolutely consistent teaching was that Mark wrote this book. You can go back to the church fathers and they all say, this was the gospel that Mark wrote. In fact, they go even further. What the, the consistent testimony of the church is that Mark wrote this through things he heard from Peter. Some have even called this Peter's memoirs because, again, the clear uh, tradition of the church from its, earlier, from its early days was that Mark wrote this based on things he heard from Peter. It may have been Peter literally reciting it to him or speaking it to him. It might have been things that Mark made notes of through things he had learned from Peter, the apostle, and then put them in this book. Whatever it is, what we have very clearly is an indication that Mark was the author. So who was Mark? Well, here's one thing to learn. Biblically, Mark was not a disciple of Jesus. He was not a disciple, one of his 12 disciples. Mark's name was actually John. His surname was Mark, John Mark, or as we hear him referred to elsewhere in the Bible, Marcus. That was another way to describe him. John Mark. Who was John Mark? Now, I just want to take you on a quick Bible tour, a speed tour to try to identify what we know from the Bible about Mark. And I think it will be helpful to you in understanding who wrote this book. So get your Bibles out. We're going to do something like a sword drill. We're going to be flipping from passage to passage just so you can see it yourselves. Let's start in Acts chapter 12, will you? Turn over to the book of Acts. Just a couple books past the book of Mark. And let's look in Acts chapter 12. This is the story of Peter being in prison and an angel miraculously coming and delivering him from the prison. Now, how many of you remember biblically what the church was doing when Peter was in jail? Does anyone remember? They were praying. They were gathering at a prayer meeting. And what I want you to look at is where they were. Okay, look with me at chapter 12 and verse 11. Or 12, I'm sorry, verse 12. Peter has just been delivered. And it says, and when he, Peter, had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. Okay, that's Mark. That's John Mark. So what do we learn so far? We learned that his mother's name was Mary. We learned that he, 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 they had a house in Jerusalem and it was large enough for the church to be gathered together praying. Now, a couple things here. First, notice that the house is described as Mary's house. 
Now, for it to be described as Mary's house, this suggests that she was a widow, or it would have been identified more likely as her husband's house. If it was a house that was large enough to be holding a prayer meeting, it was almost certainly a big house. And if it's a big house, what does that mean? They were wealthy. They were well-to-do. In fact, many believe that the house that Jesus met with his disciples at for the Last Supper and the great discourse, the Olivet Discourse we see in John 14 to 16, was John Mark's house. That's the view. That's a very common view. So what we know so far is that John Mark was the son of a woman named Mary who was a part of the church. She, uh, just contextually, we can guess that she was a wealthy widow. You say, okay, all right, fair enough. What else? What about Mark's story? What do we learn about Mark himself? Well, turn over now to Acts chapter 13, just one chapter over. We've just been introduced to John Mark. This is the story of Paul and Barnabas being sent out on their first missionary journey to start churches. And verse 3 says, And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John, this is John Mark, They had John Mark to their minister. You mean their pastor? No, their servant. That's what the word literally means. John Mark was their helper. So think about this. Paul and Barnabas go out on their missionary journey and Mark is the young man who is their assistant. He is their helper going along with them. Now go back to John 13. Go ahead to verse 13 of this chapter. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, look at this. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Same John, same John Mark. He left them. So he has been their assistant, he's been their helper, and he leaves to go back where? To his, probably his mom's place. He went to go back to Jerusalem. You say, well... What's so important about that? Turn over two more chapters to to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Notice here in verse 36, Paul and Barnabas are about to go out on a second missionary journey. And verse 36 says, And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Same guy. This is Mark. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Do you get what's going on here? John Mark has abandoned them previously. He left them. We don't know why. All we know is that he left them and Paul thought it was a big deal. He said, you've deserted us. You've been a quitter. You've left us behind. You've left us in the lurch. And Barnabas says to Paul, hey, let's take Mark again. And Paul says, it's in the Greek. It's in the Greek. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That's really what he's saying here. Nope, not going to happen again. That guy left us before. And you say, why is Barnabas wanting to take Mark? One thing we learn elsewhere in Scripture is that Barnabas was Mark's relative. Barnabas was Mark's relative. Barnabas, Mark was, was, um, was Barnabas' sister's son, his nephew. 
Now, can't you see why Barnabas would want to give Mark a second chance? Here's my nephew. He was young at the time. He's helpful. Let's bring him along. And Paul said, no way. No way. We've got work to do. We can't be abandoned now. And notice this in verse 39. The contention was so sharp between them. They had such a disagreement that they departed asunder one from the other. And Barnabas, so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas. And he went through Syria and Cilicia confirming the churches. This was such a big disagreement. Even these two great apostles, or excuse me, these two great missionaries split up Paul and Barnabas. Now that's very interesting, isn't it? Mark was a deserter. Mark had been someone who couldn't be relied on in Paul's eyes to do the work that God wanted him to do. But there's a wonderful end to this story because we read elsewhere in Paul's epistles that he talks about John Mark. At one point, he had been so untrustworthy that Paul said, I'm not going with that guy. I will not go with him again. But I'll just give you a couple of references. You can look it up on your own. In Philemon 1 and verse 24, Paul calls him his fellow laborer. This was after this time. His fellow laborer. In Colossians 4 and verse 10, Paul expressly instructs that if Mark comes to you, to the church at Colossae, receive him. He said, he's my guy. Receive him. And not only that, 2 Timothy chapter 4 at the very end of Paul's life, Paul says, only Luke is with me. You take Mark and bring him to me. He says, I want to have Mark with me. Why? For he is profitable unto me. Before Paul said, I want nothing to do with Mark. He's been untrustworthy. And at the end of his life, Paul said, he's profitable to me and to the ministry. You bring him. That's a wonderful thing. Do you know just one very small thing is that you and I aren't, aren't defined by our past mistakes. There may have been times you abandoned your post. There have been times maybe you deserted Jesus when you should have been with him. Like Paul, like Peter, right? The one who denied Jesus in a time of his great distress. You and I both look back to things in our life and we say, if only I could have that back. If only I could do that differently than I did before. Look at Mark and realize you're not defined by what you do in the past. That God can give grace to restore you to profitability, to usefulness, to doing something great for him in his work and in his ministry. There's one other thing, though, that we need to learn about Mark and is going to under help us understand a little bit more about this book. It was that he was a very close friend of Peter's. Not only was he the associate of Paul, he was the associate of Peter's. Turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to see something here in this letter from Peter that will help us. 1 Peter chapter 5. At the very end of this book, Peter says, by, by, verse 12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you. I want you to see something. Just stop for just a moment. Babylon there does not mean Babylon, like the ancient city. Babylon is almost certainly a code word for Rome. 
Rome. Not only does church tradition tell us that Peter actually lived and ministered in Rome and may likely have died there, Peter is giving us a clue here that this church, which Babylon was identified with Rome, this is Rome. And notice what he says next. So the church that is Babylon or Rome elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. He's talking about Mark. He's saying Mark is my son in the faith. He's right with me here in Rome and he salutes you too. This is again one of the textual reasons we have to believe that Mark would have written his gospel under the influence of Peter. Where would he have written it from? Most likely from Rome. Who would he have written it to? Most likely Roman people, Gentile people. You say, well, how do we know that? A couple things. If you'll notice when you go through the book of Mark, you'll notice that when Mark describes a particularly Jewish custom or tradition, he makes sure to explain it. He wouldn't do that if he was writing to Jewish people because they'd know exactly what that tradition was. But when it comes to a Jewish tradition, he is saying to his Roman audience, his Gentile audience, here's what those Jews are doing. There are some other things. Mark sprinkles in Latin phrases into this book. Well, who spoke Latin? The Romans, when he would quote Aramaic phrases, the language, the common language of the Jewish people, he'd translate them in this book. You'll see that as you go through it. It's clear that Mark is not writing primarily to Jews, he, like Matthew was. He's writing to a Gentile audience, likely a Roman audience. And so this is just, again, a very quick picture, a snapshot of who this author was. You say, when was this written? I would say the bulk, the probably the majority of scholars believe that this was the first New Testament book ever written. The first New Testament gospel, I should say. Not the first New Testament book. The first New Testament gospel. Probably written around between 50 and 60 AD. Maybe a little bit later. About 20 or 30 years after the events were written. Now that shouldn't be that uncommon or surprising to us. It was just 20 years ago that we passed the anniversary of September 11th, 2001. And you think of all the things that are still being written, of all the biographies that are still being made, the documentaries that take us back to those days and interview people about those events. This is along these lines. Mark writing something that he had received and indeed probably heard of himself. You say, was Mark a party to any of these events? Did he see them with his own eyes? Mark chapter 14 records a very interesting story that only Mark records. He records a story where all the disciples, as Jesus is getting arrested, they flee away. Well, that part is in other Gospels. But there's one detail in Mark 14. He identifies a young man, a young man. He doesn't say what his name is. He identifies a young man who is following and who sees this arrest happening. And the soldiers come after him and they lay their hands on him. And he leaves his clothes behind and runs away naked. Not a very flattering perspective of this young man. Most likely that's Mark. Most likely that was Mark running away as a young man, just like he ran away from Paul and Barnabas. And it also makes sense if Jesus indeed did eat, spend the Last Supper at Mark's family home, that Mark would have gone out to see what was going on outside of the Garden of Gethsemane or be there 
for that time. So it may well be that Mark himself personally knew Jesus and had witnessed some of these events. So there is a Cliff's Notes version of the author. And I hope it's an encouragement to us as well in what God calls us to do. The second thing to see here is the purpose of this gospel. The author of the gospel is John Mark, the purpose of the gospel. And let's go back to Mark chapter 1 together to look at this cover page, this introduction together. Notice what it says. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is the purpose of this book? It's here in this word, the gospel. Now, all of us, I'm sure, have heard of the gospel. We speak of the gospel as being that which saves sinners. The motto of our entire church is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've heard of that phrase. What does Mark mean here when he says, here begins the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, what does the word gospel mean? In the Greek, it's the word euangelion. Euangelion. We get a word from that evangel or evangelism. What is this word gospel? Do you know what the word literally has the idea of? It has the idea of good news, of glad tidings. Now we know full well we need some good news. We haven't gotten a whole lot of good news, it seems, in recent days, have we? You've heard of this recent variant that is coming out of the coronavirus and everyone hears about it and their shoulders just some, oh, this again. I was in Michigan when the news came out about that school shooting right in Michigan. A 15-year-old takes a, a gun and begins shooting his classmates. It wasn't too long ago we heard about that story out of Waukesha where that man gets in an SUV, evades barricades and starts driving over people in a Christmas parade. We hear of Russian troops amassing on the border of Ukraine. We hear of China threatening Taiwan. We say, is there any good news? Is there any good news in the world today? We need good news. And Mark stands up to say, I've got good news. It's called the gospel. It is good news. But I want you to see something here. It's not just that it's kind of this ethereal good news that's out there in the atmosphere, it would have meant something to the people who would be reading this, whether they were Jew or whether they were Gentile. What was the gospel? What was good news? What does that word have the idea of? Let's start with the Jews. Again, they were not, it seems, the primary recipient of this book. But that word has a special meaning in our Old Testament when it's translated into Greek in our New Testament. I want you to go back to Isaiah chapter 40. Will you go back to Isaiah 40 with me in our Old Testaments? This wonderful chapter begins, Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. And he goes on to say in verse 3, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make, his, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. 
this wonderful prophecy of the Messiah. But now notice again, if you go down to verse 9, look at verse 9 of Isaiah 40. This prophecy says, O Zion, that brings good tidings. When that passage was translated into the Greek, the Septuagint, the, new, the Greek version of the Old Testament, guess what word they used? Gospel. Gospel, good tidings. What were the good tidings? The good tidings that the Messiah was coming. That bring us good tidings. Get thee up into the high mountain where you can shout it to everyone. O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. There's that same word again in the Greek. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God will come with strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold his reward is with him and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. What are the good tidings? What's the gospel? What's the euangelion from the Old Testament into the new? It's that the king is coming. It's behold your God. Get up into a high mountain and shout so loud that everyone can hear. This is good news. That's the gospel. The gospel is that the king has come. And we should lift up our voices and shout it loud and clear to anyone who will hear. You say, what about the Gentiles? What would they have gotten from this? Well, this word was used generally of good tidings, of glad tidings, of good news. But there's one particular historical comparison that that I think will help you. Around the year 9 B.C., an inscription was written in a town of ancient Greece, modern Turkey. It, it is called, this inscription is called the, plying, the, pre, the pre-in calendar inscription. You can actually look it up. The pre-in calendar inscription in 9 BC. It was an inscription written to Caesar Augustus. Now, who is Caesar Augustus? Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome at the time Jesus was born. Do you remember in Luke chapter 2? It was in the days of Caesar Augustus that all the world went to be taxed. That was Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor of Rome. The one who brought a great peace to the entire Roman Empire called the Pax Romana. That was that Caesar Augustus. And in this inscription in Greek... This same word, euangelion, is used. Good tidings, good news, the gospel that Mark uses here. I want you to, I'm just going to read part of this calendar inscription to you. It says, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations. You can see this flowery language, right? Wow, he was a good-looking guy. Surpassing all previous benefactors and not even leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. I mean, it's just crazy, right? 
And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the good tidings, since the birthday of this emperor was the beginning of the good tidings, euangelion, for the world that came by reason of him. This inscription looks to Caesar Augustus and says, from the, his birth was the beginning of the gospel of the world that would come by him. Now, several years later, Mark stands up and says, this is the beginning of the gospel, not of Caesar Augustus, but of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the beginning of the gospel. Friends, the message of the gospel that goes out to Jew and to Gentile, to man, to woman, to the wealthiest in society, to the poorest in society, to every people across every language, is that the king has come. In fact, we see that even in the book of Mark. Notice with me in Mark, of verse 14 of chapter 1. Just look with me down to verse 14. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of what? The good news of what? The kingdom of God. And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What is the gospel saying? The kingdom of God is at hand. So get right with him. The kingdom is coming. It's right here. The book of Mark in chapter 16 ends with these words. Jesus is giving his last message to the people. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Same word, the gospel. Uh, or a verb form of that. To every creature. What's the gospel? The king is here. And the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to get right with him. That's what, the, that's what this gospel of Mark is all about. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the king who has come to his kingdom. And that's why we need to look finally at the subject of this account. Notice again back in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, the good news the news that the king is coming of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I just want to very briefly look at each one of those words. Jesus Christ, son of God. Why is it good news that Jesus is come? The word Jesus means Jehovah saves. Did you know that? The Hebrew form of that would be Yeshua. It literally means Jehovah is salvation. The very name Jesus means someone who saves. Do you recall when the angel came to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and announced that Mary was having a baby but it was from God? And he said, when that baby is born and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why should you call his name Jesus? For he shall save his people from their sins. The very name is of a savior. And friends, that's unspeakably good news for us. To some people, that's not good news. It's very bad news. 
Because their entire life, they've been working to save themselves. They've been working to climb the ladder one rung at a time. Every single part about their life is about their own personal self-betterment of doing a little bit better next time than they did last time. And if you were to tell them you need to be saved, it would be a great insult because they would say, I don't need to be saved. I'm saving myself. And yet for many, many others, we know internally that we desperately need to be saved. That is the greatest need of our entire life because no matter how much we try, we fail. No matter how much we put our good intentions to use, we still fall short. And friends, I don't care where you are. I don't care whether you are in the corporate boardrooms of the biggest companies on this planet. I don't care whether you are on the streets living under a bridge. I don't care whether you are wealthy or poor, very educated or much less educated. Every single person is ultimately in need of being saved. And every single one of us requires that in order to live the way that God desired. Do you know one of the most frustrating things that you could ever experience? How many of you have ever done a puzzle? Have any of you ever worked on a, on, a, on a puzzle before? I worked on those. My mom and, and my grandma love working on puzzles and we'd sit there. Do you know what's the most frustrating thing? When you get down to the last piece of the puzzle and it's not there. You say, I, I can't let this puzzle go unfinished. You look at the family dog, was it you? I can't tell you how many people there are around this world today that are looking at their lives and saying something's not fitting. I don't care how much money I have. I don't care how much, uh, I don't care how much reputation and prestige. I don't care how much of everything that I could desire. I am missing something and what they need to realize, if that's you this morning, is that they need a savior. They need someone to deliver them from themselves, from their sin, from their pointless striving that will never lead them to the deliverance that is required. Jesus is good news because he saves. His very name means it. But notice the next description that Mark uses. It is not just Jesus, it is Jesus Christ now again, we're very familiar with that word, Jesus Christ. But what does that word mean? Does anyone know what that word Christ means? It literally means anointed. Now maybe that doesn't help you very much. Anointed, like just anointed with oil. Well, you need to understand something about our Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when someone was anointed, it meant they were specially chosen by God. When the high priest was chosen to go in and represent the people uh, uh, before God, he was anointed with oil. Oil was poured on him as a symbol that this was God's choice and he would be God's minister. Do you remember when David was anointed to be king in the Old Testament? Samuel came to Jesse's house, said, call all the boys together. We're going to have a family meal. And he looked at each one of them and God said, nope, it's none of them is going to be king. And he said, is there anyone else? Oh yeah, the youngest, but he's just out with the sheep. You better bring him here. And here comes David and God makes clear, that's my king. And, and Samuel takes out a vial of oil and pours it on his head. He was anointed. See, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? He is the anointed one. The word Christ and the word Messiah are essentially synonymous. 
To be the Christ means to be God's chosen one, God's chosen messenger, God's person, God's plan for the job. To say that Jesus is the Savior is to quickly be followed up by saying he is God's Savior. He is God's chosen one. We see later in this passage, and we'll look at it in a few weeks, that God was anointing him with the Holy Spirit. He was baptized, and the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, anointing him. And God says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This was God's choice, which tells me this. If he's God's choice, he better be ours. God's anointed one, friends, I say on the authority of God's word, was not Muhammad. It was not Buddha. It was not Joseph Smith. It was not any of the imposters who have come along and said, I am God's choice. It was Jesus Christ who is the Christ, who is anointed by God, who is the Messiah come to save his people from their sins, to deliver all of us from the bondage of Satan and from the ultimate punishment in hell. And if he has God's stamp of approval on him, if he is God's choice, may he be ours, Jesus Christ. But Mark says one more thing, the Son of God, You say, what does that mean? Well, this Christmas we celebrate in a real sense that Jesus is the Son of God, that God so so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But Mark means more by this than just saying that he was the begotten of God. I just want to very quickly take you through the book of Mark and show you what Mark means by this, when he calls Jesus the Son of God. Start with Mark 3. Just go two chapters over. Mark 3 and verse 11. Again, Jesus is here is doing what he so often does in the book of Mark, which is healing people. And while he's healing people in verse 10, we learn that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. They were clamoring to experience his power for themselves. And look at verse 11. And unclean spirits, demonic spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. What do you think they meant? What do you think those demons meant? when Jesus was commanding them to leave and they personally, publicly were saying, you're the son of God. Were they just saying, well, you're the son of God like a lot of us are sons of God. We all bear his image. No. Friends, they were talking about his authority. They, as it were, were falling down before him and saying, you're the boss, we know it. You are the boss. And friends, think of this. Of Satan and all his hosts acknowledging the authority of Jesus Christ. You are the Son of God. Keep on going. In chapter 5, chapter 5 and verse number 7, this is the story of the gathering demoniac, the man who had a legion of demons in him. And this man runs up to Jesus and again acknowledges authority. He says, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Another signal of the authority of Jesus Christ. 
go over to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, at Jesus' death, Mark records that in verse 38, after Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost, he passed away. The veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. What's he saying? He's saying he didn't die like other people. He didn't die like an ordinary man. This man was something different. This man was the son of God. But there's one more example that we need to see. Go back one chapter to Mark 14. This is at Jesus' trial. He's being tried for the crime of blasphemy. He's being tried by those he came to save. And verse 60 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Answers thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said to him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, the Son of God? And listen to what Jesus says, I am. Those of us who know our Old Testaments know that was the name of God. He identified himself to his people as I am. Jesus says, I am the son of God. And ye shall see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. There Jesus takes a name, the son of man that was applied to the Messiah In the book of Daniel, he takes the right hand of power. In Psalm 110, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. And he identifies all of these things as being perfectly fulfilled in himself as the I am son of God. In other words, friends, make no mistake about it. What Mark is identifying for us through this whole book is that Jesus Christ is God himself. He is God of very God, even while he is man of very man. Jesus Christ, the one who saves, the one who has been anointed by God to save, and the one who as the very nature of God bears all the authority and all the power of God to accomplish his saving purposes for mankind. Friends, that is good news. That is good news for those of us who realize how weak we are. That is good news for those of us who realize how often we fail. That is good news for those of us who recognize how often we have sinned and violated the moral law of God. It is such good news for those of us who recognize we deserve the judgment of hell and eternal separation from God. And it is the good news that this Jesus has come as king to usher in the eternal, everlasting kingdom of God. Friends, this Christmas season, I'm convinced that even though Mark doesn't deal with the nativity story, it doesn't start at the beginning of of Jesus' life, this book and what we will be going through over the next four weeks will give us a wonderful perspective on the Christmas story 
in a way I trust will be a blessing to you. But let me leave it for today simply here. As we look ahead to the birth of Jesus in a manger, as the one who came so lowly and came in such humble, simple form, remember that what we are ultimately celebrating at this Christmas is the one who came as the Savior, the one who came as the chosen by God, the one who came bearing the very nature of God as the Son of God, to usher in the kingdom of God that will never, ever be overrun, and the one who came as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That is a wonderful title to a book. It's a wonderful cover page. And I'm looking forward over the next several weeks, months, maybe years, to digging in to this book together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We thank you that he is the King who has come to inaugurate his kingdom. And we thank you that one day every eye will see him, that every knee will bow before him, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And I pray, Father, that every one of us, again fresh in our hearts this morning, would bow before that king. May we accept again and reflect on the good news that he came to bring all of us sinners, that we can be saved and enter into the kingdom of God eternally. Friend, as we bow our heads and close our eyes at the, begin, at the end of this service, have you accepted Jesus, the Savior? Have you accepted Jesus, the Christ, the anointed of God? Have you accepted Jesus, the Son of God, the ver bearing the very nature of God and all his authority? That would be wonderful news for you today if you were to bow the knee before your king and accept him humbly as your Savior.